Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. As Justin said, our reading this evening is from Acts chapter 6 on page 1098, starting at verse 1. Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained about, uh, against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, and let me add my welcome to Justin's. It's good to see you. My name's Rob. I'm um, one of the curates here at Christchurch Forward. Let me put that on the floor. And um, I'll be continuing our series in Acts this evening. Well, um, today's passage is a bit of a favourite for churches that love to keep gospel preaching, word ministry, as their big priority. And we are going to come to that idea in a bit, but first, I want to talk to you about bias, prejudice, discrimination. Our first big point today is this, defend Christ's church against division and discrimination. And I wonder what your gut reaction is to hearing that. To having to think about prejudice, discrimination, bias. Are you saying, at last, I've been waiting for this sermon for a while? Or are you thinking, oh no, really? Do we have to talk about that? Maybe the groaners amongst you are thinking, I've been reading The Guardian too much. Am I too woke? Well, I'll have you know I do read The Guardian. And I read The Telegraph too. It's good to have a bit of balance. And both have great cryptic crosswords. But of course, caring about social and racial justice, it's not just for modern lefty liberals. 
It has always been the responsibility of God's people from the beginning of the church until today. Luke has been aware of issues of prejudice, if you've been listening. Do you remember the opposition to the apostles that he described in chapter 4, verse 13? The southern elites in Israel's capital, Jerusalem, saw the 12 apostles, all northerners, as, the Greek is, a grammatoi idiotai. You can guess what that word means. Illiterate ignoramuses or idiots. Now, they weren't illiterate idiots. That's how the elites in Jerusalem saw them. I think some translations bring that out more than others. Jesus himself, you'll remember, took on the nature of a northerner, a Galilean man from Nazareth and suffered prejudice. Do you remember Nathaniel in John's Gospel saying, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, how about the good God, Nathaniel, come in the flesh to save those who are not good? Is that good enough for you? We were reminded in our John series of the prejudice that cut both ways between Samaritans and Jews. Look, I could go on and on about this from thousands of places in Scripture. Um, It is a very old issue, prejudice, not a modern one. Because the root of prejudice is very old. Pride. Pride that leads those in power to overlook and even look down on those who are not part of their group, not like them, not in the inner circle. I imagine we've all suffered prejudice one way or another, whether because of our gender, sexual orientation, accent, class or class, ethnicity, the color of our skin. I mean, I've suffered prejudice even for the color of my hair. It's um, dulled a little bit these days, but it used to be very bright ginger. My wife's uh, hair, even more so. And once on our way to a wedding in Reading, which sounds like the start of a limerick, doesn't it? So I've decided to put this in a limerick for you. There once were two redheads heading, dressed up all smart to a wedding. I'm not a great poet. But some prejudiced bloke drenched them with coke, shouting, Gingers aren't welcome in Reading. Only he said it a lot less politely. And it wasn't funny having a load of coke thrown at us. But so prone is the human race to prejudice, we even make hair color a cause of, well, discrimination. More seriously, when I was in the South as a northerner, posh northerner, I realize, I remember raising a concern with a church leader about something they'd done and being told I was too northern and I should learn to be polite. I don't, I don't even know where to begin with that. But the thing is, you know, I don't want to portray myself predominantly as a victim because I'm, uh, well, I'm a white middle-class man with a pinky ring. I'm more likely to be a perpetrator than a victim. And you know, in today's passage, we find the apostles who themselves had been victims of prejudice, now also, well, complicit, at the very least, in unconscious bias. Verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, why is he talking about the apostles? There's no mention of the apostles there in verse 1. Well, the thing is, it was the apostles who were left in charge of the daily distribution of the food in 4 verse 35. 4 verse 35, people brought their money, their financial contribution to the needs of everybody, to the feet of the apostles. And then it was distributed to any as they had need. Now, of course, in a church several thousand in number at this stage, it's possible that the apostles were delegating the actual distribution of these funds. Notice verse 1 again. The complaint here in verse 1 is not against the apostles directly, but did you see? Against the Hebraic Jews. So it looks like the apostles had indeed delegated the distribution of all this giving to other Hebraic Jews. I say other because the apostles themselves were Hebraic Jews. They delegated the work to people like them. Now, if that's not a classic case of unconscious bias, I don't know what is. Hebraic Jews were Jews who were born in Israel and grew up in Israel. They spoke the language of Israel, Aramaic, which was closely related to the Hebrew of the Old Testament scriptures, so they could still read the Bible, the Old Testament Bible, in their own language, in its original language. Hellenistic Jews were Jews born outside of Israel, who lived all over the countries of the Roman Empire, and growing up in different countries, they were still Jews, but they were Jews who couldn't necessarily understand biblical Hebrew or speak its modern equivalent, Aramaic. You might have missed it, but back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the crowd is exclusively Jewish. Go back and read it, not now. Chapter 2, the crowd is exclusively Jewish. So the apostles are given to speak in different languages, not because they're speaking to different ethnicities, they're speaking to exclusively Jewish people, but... They're speaking in all the languages of the Roman Empire to reunite the Jewish people who are in danger of being divided by being on the one hand Hebraic Jews, on the other hand Hellenistic. And of course there was a temptation for Hebraic Jews to see themselves, even unconsciously, as more truly and more purely Jewish and the Hellenistic Jews are second class. And the apostles who were Hebraic Jews had delegated the distribution to Hebraic Jews. And now the Hellenistic Jews were missing out. It's a well-known phenomenon, isn't it, that we're more likely to employ people like us, less likely to employ anybody with a Brummie accent. We think people with glasses are more intelligent, which is why I didn't put my lenses in today that taller people make better leaders. These kind of unconscious biases are endemic to human society, but they are never okay, and they are never, never okay in the church. Given how the apostles respond here by actually addressing the problem, I take it it was never malicious or intentional on their part, hence I'm saying unconscious bias, not like the guy who threw his coke at me and the missus. But notice that even though it's not conscious and intentional, it's far more serious because the effects of this unconscious bias are far worse than coke stains because the victims are so vulnerable. Widows. 
Widows in a world without pensions or state-funded social care. And the result of the bias is that vulnerable widows don't get to eat in the church. I sometimes hear, oh, at Forward, we don't have a problem with cultural divides because we're all one ethnicity anyway. We're all white British. What can I say, even if that were the case, these guys were all Jewish, and yet they still found a way to divide. Can't we do the same by class? The north-south divide, maybe? I don't know. And look, if this fault line can appear within one ethnicity, within one ethnicity, then how much more can it happen between several different ethnicities? And if you do think we are one ethnicity at Fullwood, I think probably the Welsh people would have something to say about that, but maybe you show that you are more infected with unconscious bias than you realize because we are not one ethnicity. There are people from Taiwan, Singapore, China, South Africa, Barbados, Réunion, I can't say it, I can't do a French accent, the States, Brazil, Portugal, India, look, I could go on and on. There are British people with different ethnic heritages. We've even got Yorkshire British people. Have you ever stopped to ask people who aren't like you what it's like coming to a majority white British church where they are in such a minority? At least in the Jerusalem church, the two groups, Hellenists and Hebraic Jews on either hand, were both seemingly quite sizable. So there was a bit of solidarity for each group. Our minorities probably have it worse because they're often so alone. And I know some of you find it hard because you've told me how misunderstood you feel. That should not be. You see, being so predominantly white British, it doesn't take the problem away. It can hide the problem and make it harder. So don't ignore it. We heard back in Acts chapter 2 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in Acts chapter 4 that there is no other name under heaven given to mankind. Mankind, all of us, by which we must be saved. So then, the gospel is to unite all mankind in one name, under one Lord and one Saviour, uniting us together across divides of gender, ethnicity, status, class, and anything else that damages that unity. Anything that divides and leads to injustice must be defended against. We must get this unity right on the inside in church, if we're ever going to reach out to those on the outside. Notice verse 7. When they do finally sort out the problem, then we get verse 7. Then the word of God continued to spread and the number of disciples increase rapidly. Then, after the division is tackled. And actually, we're about to see the word spread even further than just Jerusalem and the Jewish people. We're at a turning point in the big sweep of Acts. Remember, Jesus charged right at the start of Acts his apostles to be his witnesses, not just to Jerusalem, but even to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. 
And we're going to start to see the gospel breaking those boundaries over the next few passages, beginning with Samaria and Ethiopia in chapter 8. And that's just for starters. But before the gospel can cross those divides out there, it has to do away with the divides in here. The gospel mission we have seen in Acts demands this effort to bring the people of God to unity. We must defend Christ's church against division and discrimination. It's not an issue for lefty liberals, but for conservative, gospel-believing, mission-minded Christians. What can you do? Well, perhaps we could all begin by not dismissing as troublemakers those who are complaining about not feeling welcome, but actually trying to listen to their experience instead. Look again at the complaint, verse 1. Lovely ringtone, by the way. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained. Did you see who's complaining? The Hellenistic Jews in general are complaining. And notice who they're complaining on behalf of, a particular subset within their group, their widows. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because there, that is the Hellenistic widows, were being overlooked. My fear is that our knee-jerk reaction to people talking about their experience of prejudice is defensiveness, especially if we're sort of in the dominant culture, the majority culture. Because after all, we know, and I, I really hope this is the case, we know that we are not trying to make people feel unwelcome. So when we hear a complaint, we're tempted to dismiss it because we just don't recognize ourselves in that complaint. But I'm not prejudiced. So if you're complaining about me, you must be the problem. You're the troublemaker. Proverbs 31.8, a verse that sadly many of us know for all the wrong reasons now, says this. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The Hellenistic Jews see that the church is not safe for their widows. And they speak up. And it is glorious to see. And it is to be welcomed. We need good, godly complaint. Now obviously there is such a thing as ungodly complaint. Remember the numbers series. If you don't, go back and listen to it. But we need it. We need good godly complaint. I really hope we're not deliberately discriminating against anyone at church, but there may well be unconscious bias. Please help us spot it where we've given in to our unconscious biases. Please speak up. Speak up on each other's behalf. Two people in the last week sent emails, uh, in the last two weeks rather, have sent different emails about two different individuals who've been made to feel unwelcome. And as a leadership team, we're grateful. Thank you. 
for our part as a leadership team, we will try not to react defensively, but in a way that truly promotes and defends the one gospel of the one God who wants all mankind to be saved in his only begotten son. That's what the disciples do, isn't it? That's how the apostles react. They don't defend themselves, but the church. And they defend it with a gospel-driven, inclusive solution. That's our next point. Firstly, we see a gospel-driven, inclusive leadership. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now that could sound a little bit dismissive, particularly in uh, potentially a church which has unconscious bias against people who aren't tertiary educated and um, do waiting work. But can I say the Greek word for waiting here on tables is the same as the Greek word for ministry in verse 2. So the disciples are to some degree equating feeding widows with the very word ministry that they say is their priority. They're saying both are ministries, even though we personally have a very clear priority. Verse 3 goes on. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So then, the apostles acknowledge the complaint. They gather the whole church to deal with the division, verse 2. And then, verse 3, they give away authority. Instead of defending their challenged honor, they share the challenge of defending the church from division. And they share it inclusively with the whole church. Isn't this the response of gospel-driven leaders who are willing to admit that they've got things wrong? Because after all, doesn't the gospel teach us that we're sinners who mess up in many ways? And doesn't it make us quick to listen and listen deeply to complaints? Notice as well, gospel-driven leaders admit they need help. The whole church gathered, verse 2. Help us, church. Verse 3, they asked the church to collaborate in creating a whole new layer of leadership to help them care for the church. Doesn't the gospel teach me I cannot help myself into the kingdom? I can't save myself or go it alone. I need God's help. And God has given us to one another to help each other. We need God. We need each other. This is gospel-driven leadership. And because it is gospel-driven, it is inclusive the apostles oversee an inclusive election process in which the Jewish immigrants get power. Jewish immigrants, those who grew up outside geographical Israel and have moved there in later life. Did you notice, you probably didn't, unless you happen to be an anonymistician. You don't even know what an anonymistician is. An anonymistician is somebody who studies names. But if you were an anonymistician, you would have noticed that these are the Hellenistic Jews being chosen in verse 6. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Nopumba, 
Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch. Nobody laughed. Have you all fallen asleep? Did you not get the... Anyway, never mind. Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now look, it might not be obvious to you, but this is exclusively Hellenistic Jews. If you lived in the first century, you'd recognize it just as quickly as if I read out a list saying, Jean-Jacques, Pierre, Simone, Emmanuel, Jacques. You'd know where they were from, wouldn't you? These names are clearly all Hellenistic. And notice who appoints this exclusively Hellenistic group. The whole church. Isn't that beautiful? The Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews together appoint exclusively Hellenistic Jews to solve the problem. Isn't it lovely? Because the whole church has listened deeply and understood the problem and acted in unity to restore unity. And they do so by positively discriminating, favoring the Hellenistic Jews in the appointment process to redress the neglect of the Hellenistic widows. Isn't that hopeful? And to really drive the point home, the last member of the list is about as fringe to the Jewish community in Israel as you can get. End of verse 6, Nicholas from Antioch. That is a city outside Israel, in Syria. A convert to Judaism, says the verse. He's not even ethnically Jewish. He's a Gentile. Wow. You know... If we actually get that far in Acts, I think we're planning to, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas' mission to all the nations launched from this city, Antioch, because Luke is flagging up for us even now that the way we handle division in here matters to how we do mission out there among the nations. Have you come across this book by Ben Lindsay? We need to talk about race. Can I say, if you want to take these issues further, this would be a great place to start. You could listen deeply to Ben Lindsay by reading his whole book a couple of times. He unpacks the experience of black British Christians in white majority churches, and it is a fantastic read. And as Lindsay argues, the culture in the church in Britain will change most readily when we have an inclusive solution. When the whole church gets on board and listens and acts and engages, I'd really urge you to give this a read. Finally, we defend the church from division and discrimination with gospel-driven, inclusive ministries. As a young Christian leader, I was taught from this passage that my job is to pray and preach. All well and good. Then I was taught if people try to distract me from that priority with any other job, I should do that other job so badly that people stop asking me to do it. What a misguided application of this passage. Not because prayer and preaching isn't my priority. I ought to be laser focused on it. Gosh, I wish I was more laser focused on it. That is my job as an elder and pastor, as I take up the apostolic baton from this passage. 
Why do I say that apostolic baton phrase? Well, because later in Acts, in chapter 20, as the apostle Paul is about to be imprisoned and can't do his ministry anymore, he hands over the responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God, the word of God, to the elders and pastors in Ephesus. Acts chapter 20. Are we going to get that far, Johnny? We are. Okay, there you go. In the post-apostolic age, elders, church pastors continue this apostolic priority of praying and preaching. So it is right for us church elders to say with the apostles in verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to minister to tables. And verse 4, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Look, can I say, if the walls of a house are falling down, one of you had a tree fall on your house recently, could the walls have fallen down? You don't take stones from the foundation to fix the walls. That would be madness. Well, let me say, the ministry of the word is what keeps the church standing. Standing on the gospel of Christ. The gospel of one name by which all mankind must be saved. The gospel that keeps us caring about unity. And even more than that, about bringing all the world to unity in the salvation that is on offer from the one God to his world in Christ. We must keep passionate about word ministry. It must be the beating heart of our church. We don't need less gospel when we face the problem of prejudice. We need more gospel But notice, word ministry, whilst it is the engine of church growth and change and unity, is not the only essential ministry. The seven are set aside for what, end of verse 3, did you see, is called a responsibility. It is the church's responsibility to care for its own, practically, without prejudice or partiality. And so they too need to be, verse 3, men who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Because this is not a job that can be neglected but a job that needs to be taken seriously and carried out with skill and all spiritual wisdom. This passage sets the precedent for what later in the New Testament would become known as deacons. Deacons actually comes from this Greek word for minister or serving in verse 2. And the ministry of deacons in the New Testament, it wasn't just confined to distributing social care like here it could be as broad as anything that was necessary to serve the welfare of the church to free the elders to preach and pray church of england deacons nowadays are not quite the same thing (laughs) but their role is fulfilled by all sorts of people at forward ministries like the pastoral care teams the ops team the office team Fiona looking after the buildings. You know, in some senses, every member of the PCC, these are precious people in the life of our church. Not simply because they do the slightly rubbish work that lets us elders do the real work. No. Diaconal work requires 
Well, it requires prayer. That's why the apostles, when they lay their hands on them, in verse 6, pray for them. I wonder, do you value and pray for those who do that kind of behind-the-scenes work here at Forward? Well, we have to close. But I hope, I really hope, this passage gives you hope. But perhaps also it leaves you frustrated. I mean, the church in Jerusalem seems to solve its problems so quickly here. And I know some of you have been longing for divisions in our churches across the UK and perhaps even here in Forward alone to be solved. And they just seem intractably difficult. Well, I wonder if we need more power. When the apostles were told to stop preaching in chapter 4, they prayed to the God who had all power, that's what they said about him, to keep preaching. And then we read in 4 verse 33, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. What? Sorry, what? When a church experiences the power of God in the preaching of the gospel of Christ's resurrection, when it powerfully experiences that grace, powerfully at work amongst them, it leads to a church where there is no needy person. Why? Because when we powerfully experience the love of God in Christ, it changes us to love Well, everyone, every single one of our family here. It's interesting, isn't it? The apostles talk in verse 2 about how they need to be set aside for the ministry of the word. But when they unpack what that means, their first priority in verse 4 is prayer. I wonder if we need to get praying. Praying that God would work in power amongst us to give us such a powerful experience of his grace that we would truly love one another. Naomi's going to lead us in our prayers.